you're going to struggle to get traction. You know, how are you going to innovate in a space that's 20 or 30 years old? So, you know, there were people that wanted a new solution, but they were very doubtful of anyone's capabilities on, on bringing something new to market. Welcome to Energy Builders, a podcast about the geologists, engineers, roughnecks, entrepreneurs, and many more that are building in oil and gas. On this episode, our guest is Cameron Snow. Cameron is the co-founder of Dynomics, a cloud-based interpretation platform to help the oil and gas industry keep up with digital transformation and leverage new technologies such as machine learning. On this episode, Cameron and I discuss the motivation to launch a startup, the pushback he received from colleagues, how their market research led to their very first customer at Dynomics, and what success looks like both personally and professionally. The conversation was fantastic, and I know you'll enjoy it as well. Here we go. Well, today's guest is Cameron Snow with Dynomics. Cameron, welcome to the Energy Builders podcast. Yeah, I appreciate the chance to be on here, Adam. Yeah, I'm excited to to have you on and, and talk today. So like kicking off, let's talk about Dynomics a little bit. You have this st- software startup company, and the goal is to replace Petra and Geographics with a new modern platform. Um, what does that mean? And let's start there. What does that mean? Yeah, so, um, you know, with respect to, you know, where did the term dynamics uh, come from? You know, it, it was initially data to economics. Um, so so that's that's where the term dynamics uh, originated from. Um, and, you know, all the good website names were already taken. So we got stuck with dynamics at the end of the day. Um, so, so that's the origin of that. But, you know, really the origin of our mission to uh, replace Petra and Geographics uh, really comes from personal need. So, you know, I had spent a lot of time working in EMP companies, very familiar with most of the subsurface uh, mapping packages. And, you know, from, from using those from years, I, I realized that, you know, I could, I could execute on my workflows with them, but that it involved a lot of workarounds. And whenever I talked to people, it was always, hey, here's a workaround for how we can do this. Here's a workaround for how we can do that. And so I wanted to make a software that did things a bit more natively for how we're working these days, instead of trying to force our current workflows into, into the older legacy softwares. That's a great exclamation of explanation of it. So you choose you chose that name, combining data and economics, dynamics, and then is your background in geology? Yeah, my my background is uh, geology and geoscience. Um, so I, I'm not sure how far you want to go back with that, um, but you know, let's hold on for that in a minute. Like, because but it, was that were these were your pain points initially? To, to build dynamics? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, I was a working geologist in an EMP company. And, you know, I was trying to do the things that I think a lot of geologists are trying to do. I was trying to, you know, come up with new drilling locations. I was trying to, uh, you know, characterize my reservoir properties, you know, looking at porosity and permeability and in-place volumes. Um, trying to determine, you know, where to go lease acreage, um, especially early on in, you know, when unconventional plays were relatively new back in, you know, let's say around 2010, 
2010, you know, 2012, kind of back in that era. And, um, you know, I, that, that was kind of what shaped my thinking was, you know, what was the work that I was trying to do and what was the, the set of hoops that I had to jump through to do it from a technical perspective. And at what point did you decide no one else is going to solve this problem? I need to start building this. Uh, well, um, it took a while before, you know, I, I made the leap to start building. Um, and you know, one of the problems in, in EMP when you want to be an entrepreneur is, you know, it's a, it's a great career working as a exploration geologist, right? You know, trying to go out and drill new wells and find new plays. It's very exciting. It's financially rewarding. Um, and so, so, you know, that makes, you know, it makes it a hard jump to make to actually, you know, try and start building something. I, it was uh, around... 2018, though, when I finally decided to, you know, take the plunge, uh, you know, kind of leave the operator side of the industry behind and, you know, move into, uh, you know, software design and, and uh, creation. So had you any prior experience building software or programming or coding? Uh, a, a little bit. Um you know, so I, uh, you know, I had always tinkered around with websites, um, you know, and had started to, uh, you know, move a little bit into what I would call some very light web development. Um, nothing, nothing fancy or complex. Um, so, you know, I was a little bit familiar with some of the uh, capabilities and you know, from doing my technical work, uh, you know, I was familiar with things like Python and MATLAB for doing technical computing, but I don't really consider that programming. I more consider that like scripting um, because it was nowhere near what a commercial software is. Um, and, and I've got to admit, I'm still not really much of a, a software developer. Uh, that's where my co-founder, um, you know, really uh, contributes and, and drives uh, things. That's great. I'm, I'm non-technical. So anything you say on the technical side, I'll, I'll have no idea anyway. So <laughs> no worries for me. But so when you started um, to move that way, you mentioned your co-founder. When you talked about this idea to others around you, maybe other geoscientists, did they think, yeah, this is a great idea? Did they think you're crazy? What was some of the feedback you received? Uh, it was a combination of that. Um, so, you know, first of all, I guess, starting with my co-founder, um, you know, we had uh, actually gone to school together. Um, so when I was doing my PhD at Stanford, he was doing a, a master's there. Um, and we actually didn't really know each other very well at that point. And, uh, and then later on in Houston is when we kind of reconnected and, uh, you know, became better friends. And, and we had, you know, talked about starting something before and, you know, we had kind of got started and then, you know, stalled a few times, um, you know, and, and we both had an idea that we wanted to develop a new software product, but we weren't sure where to go. And then I started talking to people, you know, that were former coworkers and other people I knew that had made the jump, um, you know, to, you know, creating something, starting their own business. And the feedback was both positive and negative uh, at the same time. Like a lot of people were like, yeah, we absolutely need something that replaces 
these older softwares that haven't evolved, you know, where an update is like, hey, we corrected a typo in the uh, error message, you know, that you get. Um, so there was a lot of frustration from people on that front. But um, a lot of people are also, you know, saying, you know, you've got a great career, like, don't risk it. You can, you know, you're one of the, you know, you're, you're really good geoscientists. You're not, you know, ever going to be unemployed, you know, regardless of the industry, you should just ride that out and you'll be a VP in no time. And, 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 you know, that, that should be your career path as opposed to doing something really risky, um, you know, and, and people had all sorts of reasons why it wouldn't work. You know, the incumbents are, are too big. Um, you're going to struggle to get traction. Um, you know, how are you going to innovate in a space that's 20 or 30 years old? So, you know, there were people that wanted a new solution, but they were very doubtful of, um, you know, anyone's capabilities on, on bringing something new to market. And so how then did you overcome those objections? Like you said, there was some positive, but there was also the negative. When you and your co-founder put your heads together, how did you overcome those and ultimately decide, let's start building this new software program? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we went out and we talked to our potential customers. Uh, we you know, basically said, all right, let's organize a uh, kind of a mini roadshow where we're going to go around and talk to, you know, 20 different EMP companies. We're going to kind of pitch them on an idea that we have and get some feedback from them. And we did that. Uh, we had actually built a little proof of concept decline curve analysis tool, um, you know, which was about the smallest product that we thought we could build. And, uh, you know, so we, we did that. We talked to people. We listened to what they were saying. And, um, you know, the feedback we got was, oh, this is this is interesting, but it's not quite what we need. You know, we, we've got a tool that does this now. Um, so we, we just asked them, it's like, well, what, what do you need a tool for? You know, and, uh, and one of the first answers we got was, uh, you know, we want something that will allow us to you know, do petrophysics at scale. Um, so do better log calculations, help us better characterize our reservoir. And, you know, we said, sure, we can do that. Give us a couple months. And, uh, and we went off for a couple months. We, you know, worked, you know, every day, like just pushing out new features, new options, uh, building out a workflow to do this. And then we came back, you know, a couple months later and, and showed some of those companies that had given us that that guidance. And uh, two of them actually were willing to basically sponsor us for the development. You know, our product was nowhere near commercial yet, but they saw what we were able to do in a couple of months. And, you know, we said, hey, over the next three to four months, we can build it out to these specs. And the next three to four months after that, we'll, you know, add this additional functionality um, you know, if you can support this uh, through a licensing agreement. And, you know, they they agreed. And I think by the time we finally got all the T's and C's uh, signed and all the, you know, everything in place, um, we had already fully met all the requirements that were laid out and were already kind of moving beyond that. So it, you know, it was a process of, of really just, you know, a little bit of customer discovery and then start building. 
That's great. So your customer discovery and market research kind of turned out to be almost like your, your, your seed funding round as it was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for us, that's, that's what we wanted. Um, you know, we didn't want to go the, uh, you know, the venture capital route, uh, where we had to, you know, raise a bunch of money to, uh, you know, to try to, to try to build something on a timeline. Awesome. Let's, let's pivot now. Let's go, let's kind of back up and go talk. Let's talk a little bit about your background, Cameron. Let's, let's rewind to the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a little town in North Carolina, um, kind of in the, uh, in the foothills area. Um, you know, I think the, it probably had 500 people at the time and it's probably only got about 800 now, you know, so lots of, lots of forest and green hills and, you know, lakes to fish in. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a nice rural setting, very quiet, um, but, but not too far away from, you know, the nearest city. Uh, so that's where I grew up. Um, were you a good student? Uh, I was, <sighs> well, it depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> I, I got good grades and, you know, I was, um, well-behaved. I was respectful to my teachers. Um, but in hindsight, I, I realized that I was much better at, um, let's say delivering the results that, you know, would lead to a good grade than I was in at, you know, really taking ownership of the knowledge and really getting a deep fundamental understanding. And, you know, I didn't realize that until, you know, years later, I think. But, you know, it's one of those things I, I realized it's like, oh, I can memorize this. I can go through this practice and I can get A's. But, um, you know, I realized that after that, it's like, oh, well, I got an A in calculus, but I didn't actually learn anything. You know, I got an A in history, but all I got out of that was a list of dates. I didn't really appreciate the context. Uh, so, I was uh, academically a good student, um, but I was not a student that, you know, took a full advantage of that, of, of those opportunities, if that makes sense. I, I can commiserate. I, I feel very similar to you <laughs> uh, about my own, uh, my own school experience. Uh, how did you know, I mean, at what point in your learning and in like moving from high school to college, did you think petrophysics or, or geology? I don't know what exactly if you specialize, but where did you think earth sciences are the way for me? Yeah, so I actually um, started off in physics and, uh, you know, I was in my, um, I think it was my second uh, physics course my freshman year. And I had a very old school professor that, um, you know, just, uh, you know, he, he had a, a teaching style that was very painful and his way of evaluating students was, you know, what I would say is out of like, you know, a previous generation, um, to put it kindly. And, um, it was, it was so unenjoyable that I changed my major to undecided and I dropped the class. And, uh, because I had dropped the class, I needed to make that up. So I ended up going to a summer session, um, 
And I took a geology class during that summer session. And I had this wonderful, wonderful professor named uh, Skip Stoddard, um, who was just very passionate about geology. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, just a, a charismatic guy, very friendly, um, you know, and when he talked about geology, he was really good at telling a story about how, you know, the earth had changed and evolved and, and, and that's what drove me towards geology. So it was really kind of my, you know, in between my first and second year that I decided, huh, may, I'll just major in geology. Now I made that switch without really understanding what it is geologists do. Um, you know, I may have, uh, like, you know, searched online, um, you know, and that was pre Googling. So, uh, I can't even say I Googled it. Um, you know, what, uh, you know, w what it is geologists do. And, you know, I kept taking courses and, and I realized that, you know, I had a, had a knack for it and I enjoyed it. Um, then, uh, after that, I decided to go to grad school. Um, and, uh, of all the like really, um, you know, practical, uh, applied things, I decided to, uh, look at the geochemical evolution of volcanoes, um, which has, you know, zero practicality for oil and gas, um, and, and not much for, uh, anything outside of academia. Uh, but it was enjoyable, um, you know, and, uh, did pretty well at that. Um, then, and so that was at Utah state. And then I, uh, after that, I moved out to California and I did my PhD at Stanford. Um, once again, mostly looking at uh, high temperature geochemistry and uh, plate tectonics. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of my academic background. And uh, for some reason, we were having a career day at Stanford and, um, you know, attendance wasn't very great. And so they sent out a, uh, an email reminding all the students that it'd be appreciated if you went there. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll just walk through, you know, get a free ink pen or two. And sure enough, uh, there was a guy standing at a booth and he handed me an ink pen and, uh, and he, you know, introduced himself and, uh, and he said, okay, well, I gave you an ink pen. So now you have to interview with us. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And, uh, so we scheduled an interview and then, you know, 15 minutes later, I had an internship, uh, at Apache, which was my, uh, which is where I started my career at. So were you working the Anadarko Basin or? Yeah. So, or somewhere so else or? yeah, uh, initially as an intern, I, um, I was actually assigned to the Tulsa office there. And, uh, so was working the Anadarko Basin, uh, specifically looking at, uh, some of the Red Fork in, uh, Northern Oklahoma, um, as well as some of the, uh, some of the Atoka, uh, section there. Um, and, and that was a, that was a good experience. Um, you know, the, the team there, uh, really took the time to explain a lot of the basics to me. Like here, here's what we do every day as geologists, you know, you're, you've got these things called well logs and here's how we get them. And, you know, we, you know, evaluate where the formations are and we make this series of maps and, you know, here's how we go about it. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, the Anadarko Basin is a, it's a good place to, to learn geology. Um, 
and the the people that were there at the time uh you know even uh you know even though they they were clearly like uh a bit weirded out by having a phd from stanford as their intern um they were they were great mentors to me so that's awesome that's great to hear so was that the first time i mean that you had a look into what exploratory geology was like had school prepared you for that at all or was this the first time uh it was really the first time um you know so where i went to undergrad at um there was no oil and gas at all i think the closest we came to oil and gas was uh there was an alumni who was working for texaco at the time and she came and gave us like a half hour talk on like you know what she does in oil and gas and uh and and then never heard the words oil and gas again and then went off to do my uh my masters and there i think i have one class that was more focused on the oil and gas industry i have one professor there that had uh he had just came back from chevron and um so he was a bit more applied, but it was still very much a research focus. And I, I didn't actually get what it was that, you know, a bunch of geologists were running around doing all day. Um, uh -huh. I think I still had had in my mind that like we were out there with like rock hammers and, you know, uh, little hand lenses looking at things as opposed to, uh, you know, sitting behind a uh, workstation all day. So. So let's let's let's. Uh, fast forward back to the present, and uh, and by the way, thank you for sharing that. I love hearing some of your your story. Um, you mentioned, you know, we talked about your co-founder, finding your co-founder. We kind of talked about um, how you were able to secure financing or or um, funding to allow you guys to build and get to kind of your first point of having a product fit for the market. What happened next? Uh, okay, you know, really, with respect to what happened next, it, it just—it uh, was just a matter of the day-to-day -day grind. Um, you know, we, you know, so I, I will say that our our first customer, um, they were they were great for helping us iterate on the product. Uh, so, you know, as part of the. Um, the agreement where they sponsored us uh, to do the development, you know, we scheduled uh, check-ins every two weeks, and we did that for nearly the first year, I think. Um, so every two weeks, you know, we had a, a meeting where they would say, you know, I ran into, you know, this bug, this doesn't work smoothly, uh, you know, I need some functionality to do this or that. And, and we would go away, we'd iterate, we would add functionality and, and we just continued that loop, uh, for, you know, a, over a year with them for sure. Um, in the meantime, of course, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to multitask. Um, so we, you know, continued cold calling, uh, potential new customers, sending out emails, marketing on LinkedIn, uh, doing conferences to try to, you know, expand our brand reach, um, and, uh, you know, get more name recognition and, you know, really at, at that stage with, with any startup or new product, you know, it's, it's all about 
just trying to get it in front of as many eyeballs as you can. And were you guys doing this all yourself? Were you working with um, marketing groups? Had you brought anyone else in-house? Are you essentially outside of this commitment from this first customer? Are you guys just, you know, funding this out of your own pockets? What does that look like, like day-to-day, the team? Is it just the two of you or more? Yeah, for the first, uh, really for the first two years, it was just the two of us. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about software development is, um, if you have the skill set needed to do it yourself, um, you know, where, you know, and both of us were building, you know, my, um, my co-founder, he was doing, you know, most of the heavy lifting with respect to the infrastructure and the interaction, uh, part of it. And then I was dealing with the, uh, the technical subsurface workflows. So, you know, implementing different methods, ensuring that, you know, we were, you know, providing customers with the right outputs. Um, you know, so, so we were able to handle a lot of that ourselves. And, you know, that meant a very low uh, monetary cost uh, to, to run the startup. Uh, but it was a very high time commitment. Um, on our part. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of monetary calls for anyone who's like, you know, doing their own startup in oil and gas, if you're, if you're doing a software, I'll, I'll tell you that essentially storage is almost free and compute power is almost free these days on the cloud, right? Like you can do a massive amount of work for a trivial amount of money. Um, you know, but you have to have the skills to do it yourself. If you don't, you're going to have to hire developers. You're going to have, or you're going to have to outsource and, you know, try to have some third party build it for you. And you're going to have to go raise money. You're going to have to, you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, we were able to avoid that by, by building it ourselves. Now it meant we had to go a little slower, but, you know, it also meant that, you know, we built it in a very, I, I think sustainable way. Um, and then, you know, in terms of adding to the team, uh, our first, uh, hire after that is we hired a salesperson, um, to help us on the marketing side. Um, and, and we really hired, you know, kind of at the, at the worst of the downturns, right? Like we hired, uh, you know, it was, I guess in 2020 when oil had kind of taken another dip back into the, uh, you know, to the $30 range, um, a bunch of companies just had layoffs and, and we picked up, a a person that was, um, you know, that, that was willing to, uh, kind of put up with some of the franticness of working for a small company. Um, you know, and, uh, she helped us, you know, with some of the marketing, uh, and sales for a while. Um, and then since then, you know, we've expanded the, the team beyond that. Uh, so, what was the um, what was the turning point of going from? I mean, you had that going from no customers, no product, to having one customer and then building out your product. But was there a was there a massive shift where suddenly you had multiple customers or were working with multiple groups, or was it slow and steady? Yeah, that, no, that's a good question. Um, so you know, we got uh, one customer right at the beginning, and then a couple of months later. 
we added the second customer, um, you know, and it, it really came down to, we would have almost added them at the same time, but they ran into budget issues. Uh, so they had to wait until new year's. Um, and then I think we added a third and fourth customer, uh, right after that, you know, within another, you know, couple of months. Um, and at that point we, you know, we, we kind of looked at, you know, what, what we were doing in terms of, uh, sales and cloud cost and, you know, we said, all right, you know, we, we should invest in the business and, uh, you know, and start, start hiring here to, you know, broaden our, our outreach. Um, so it was really just, you know, we, we grew to a point where we looked at it and said, all right, well, even if, you know, we only retain 50% of our customers or something, we'd still have enough money to, uh, you know, to make sure that we can pay everyone's salary without having to, uh, having to dip into our own pockets. And how did you figure out your pricing model? Were you looking at industry standards? I mean, I know a lot of the old, you know, uh, historic packages, right, would come with like a setup fee and then yearly maintenance or a yearly uh, subscription. How did you guys, as opposed to more generalist software, right, cloud software, cloud computing software that's like monthly recurring billing, how did you guys um, approach the challenge of, of pricing cloud software for the oil and gas industry? Yeah, well, to, to be honest, that's that's still a challenge, and we still ask ourselves every day: Are we charging the right price? Um, but there was a a bit of trial and error and a bit of math involved. Um, so, you know, I'll try and sound smart and say on the math side, you know, we knew <laughs> uh, roughly how much a license for some of the competing softwares calls uh, cost, and we knew you know how much maintenance cost roughly, um, just from our prior experience in the industry. And it's like, okay, well, if this software costs 50000 in year one, and then there's a 20% maintenance, so that's 10000 ongoing annually, and we run that out five years, what's the total cost of ownership? Um, and then we said, okay, well, now let's do the same thing, you know, and figure out how much we could charge on a year-by-year -year basis to get to about the same cost of ownership, um, you know, and... Of course, because our software, when you're just building it out, it doesn't have nearly as many features. It needs to be some fraction of of that total cost. Um, so I think that's how we came to the initial price. It was it was that uh, math, but it was also, you know, we um, when we were doing the first uh, deal, we said to ourselves, "All right, like what feels like, you know," and it was really kind of a gut feel, like what feels like the the right price um, for for what we're going to offer over the next two years um, to this company. And, you know, and we basically put that out there and they said, yeah, we can support that. Um, and, you know, I, I'll say we, we haven't been, uh, we, we've been very aggressive on software development, but we've not been aggressive on price increases. You know, you always feel like you leave something on the table and someone says yes right away. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever sold a home, but, you know, you put it out there and someone offers you list price and it's like, ah, oh, why didn't I ask for, you know, more? Um, so, you know, it felt a bit like that. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, it was a number that we were happy with. Um, and, you know, we don't advertise ourselves as a low price software. Um, 
But when we tell people the price, you know, a lot of times like, oh, that's less than I thought it would be. Um, and so, you know, we probably have, to be honest, you know, scope to increase prices uh, based on the quality of the product and the value we're adding to customers. But, you know, we just haven't chose to, uh, to do that because, um, you know, we, you know, we just like keeping the customers happy and, you know, we like having that as kind of a, a card that we can play, you know, it's like, Oh, by the way, our software is also a great value as opposed to a great, just being a great product. Sure. You're trying to balance all of those things. I understand that. Yeah. That makes sense. What was it like going to market and, and, um, like you mentioned, 2020, picking up a salesman, uh, salesperson, building out your sales team. What was it like going, you know, to try and get companies to buy this software you're offering in the middle of one of the weirdest times? <laughs> I mean, I've been through multiple recessions in the oil and gas industry. I think everyone has, but surely 2020 is one of the weirdest. What was that like um, approaching um, account managers? Yeah, it was, it was brutal. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, you would, I mean, I mean, first of all, the, the thing that was the, the most disparaging is you would call someone and you'd have a good call with them. You demo the product to them. You call back two weeks later and you find out they've been laid off. You know, you send out a marketing email and everyone was there in January and in March you get 15% bounces uh, because the email's not found. And it's like, oh, you know, there's been a lot of cuts. It's been deep. Um, so so that, that part was just discouraging. Um, you know, there were uh, a lot of people that um, just from the optics, you know, would tell you it's like, hey, I like your product, but we just laid off, you know, 500 people or 1,000 people. I can't be seen as bringing in a new software, uh, you know, when when I've just laid off, you know, 20% of my team. Um, that would just, you know, no one would understand why we're doing that and, and it wouldn't go down well. Um, so there was there were a lot of conversations like that where, you know, you got positive feedback on the product and what you were trying to do, but then you got a negative commercial response. Um, also, you know, no one was drilling any wells at the time. So, you know, people had a lot of time to talk to you. Um, so, you know, you could get people on the phone, you could get them on a demo, you could get them on a trial. And, but then they would say, well, well the problem is like, we don't have any budget, right? And, uh, you know, so it's, it's like, oh, people had time, but no money. And, you know, quite frankly, it's the opposite now. People are drilling wells again, rig counts going up, people are busy. And now they've got money, but they've got no time. Um, so, you know, our, our challenge has completely flip-flopped from, you know, we had their attention, you know, but they didn't have the budget to now they've got the budget, but it's really hard to get their attention. Did any of that pay off for you though, getting in there and when their time was plentiful, has that followed through? And Yeah, it certainly has. Um, I think with at least uh, three of the customers that we added last year, they were customers that we had talked to in 2019, 2020, 2021. 
And it was just a matter of, you know, yeah, we like it. We're going to do it. You just got to give us time. And, you know, you almost start to give up on them when you've had a sales cycle that long. And then you run into them at a conference. You say, hey, you think there's a chance we'll do it? And they're like, yeah, we can do it, you know, next month. And it's it's like, oh, well, you know what? <laughs> you know, yeah. amazing. Um, you do a little victory dance and then you, you know, start the process again. Right. Right. I want to back up again a little bit. Um, uh, Cameron, because you said something about you and your co-founder earlier in our conversation, you said you guys knew you wanted to build some, some sort of cloud software. You just didn't know what it was. Um, why did you know that? Why did you, what attracted you to building a SaaS product? Yeah, a couple of couple of parts to that. Um, one is, you know, we saw that everything was moving to the cloud. Um, you know, you look at, you know, uh, all the productivity products people use on uh, a day-to-day basis, you know, whether or not it's email or Slack or, um, you know, things like Google Docs and Sheets and, you know, now, you know, most of Office is also available online. Um, you know, we, we saw that trend uh, going on. Um, you know, we also, you know, from our background and thinking about data, uh, especially my co-founder, he had worked in Seismic uh, quite a bit beforehand. And he had the idea that, you know, we should be leveraging the power of the cloud to you know, work with seismic data and to store those volumes uh, to take a lot of that off the hands of, of EMP companies. Um, and so, you know, that was an angle that he was coming from. And so, you know, when, when we looked at it, we said, well, you know, companies are clearly getting more comfortable keeping large amounts of data in the cloud. Um, you know, companies are, you know, more comfortable with using cloud-based products, you know, whether or not it's, you know, um, you know, a smaller, you know, program like, you know, your email or a larger, you know, uh, program like, you know, Salesforce or something like that. And, and we also, you know, just saw that, you know, a lot of the bottlenecks in, um, software delivery in the cloud had, uh, started to be ironed out. So, you know, Initially, bandwidth would have probably been a problem that would have made uh, doing this challenging. Well, you know, uh, as everyone now has high-speed internet um, and is streaming all the time, like, well, now bandwidth is, you know, not a concern at all. Um, You know, so that problem went away. We looked at some of the challenges that companies had with traditional software development where, you know, you maybe only ship one, two, three, four updates a year. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, well, h- how are those updates done? Well, you, you know, you put it on a, a DVD, you send it off to the IT group, or it's a download that then has to be installed by the IT group. And, you know, it creates headaches where people are on different versions. And it's, uh, you know, and it's, it creates a management problem. And with cloud software, you don't have that because it's like, hey, you log into the software, you're on the latest version all the time. Um so, so we, it was a combination of, we felt that all software development was going in that direction. Uh, so that, that was probably our strongest, um, kind of, you know, indicator that, 
that we wanted to go cloud. Two, we felt like it solved some of the software development challenges. Uh, three, we felt like it solved some of the data challenges. And, and four, we, we felt like it gave us a, um, a unique value proposition uh, because none of our competitors are cloud-based softwares. Um, and so with us being able to, to market ourselves that way, um, we felt that gave us one competitive advantage right off the start. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for thinking through that and breaking that down. I'd love to hear your thinking about how you, you know, came to that. Like it's the time, like you mentioned a lot of those things. Do you think the oil and gas industry now is more receptive because of being pushed to Zoom meetings and all of this through 2020? Is the industry as a whole more open to new technologies like this? Or is it still a little slow on the uptake? Yeah, um, well, f first of all, the, the pandemic, you know, uh, created a real revolution um, in, uh, in the way we do business. Um, you know, you mentioned Zoom meetings. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we had a really hard time getting customers on a screen share for, uh, for an hour product demo. <laughs> um, it, you know, people were just like, uh, you know, next time you're coming through, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a demo. Um, so, you know, we'd have to, you know, try to, try to schedule that and, um, and, you know, make it so, you know, we could be in customers offices and, and that made it, you know, really quite difficult. And then the pandemic came along and all of a sudden everyone was, you know, working from home. So, you know, Zoom and team meetings um, became very commonplace. And now, you know, when we offer to come into someone's office, half the time the response we get is, well, before you bother coming into the office, like, let's just sit down and do a Zoom meeting, um, you know, which is perfect for us, right? Um, you know, it saves you a lot of, lot of hassle, you know, with having to, you know, drive to someone's office, you know, check in at the lobby, get set up and hope your IT works. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's been a game changer for us in, on that front. Um, the other front is about the willingness of the industry to adopt new softwares. Um, it is really, I would say, company and individual specific. Um, there are uh, some companies that are clearly a lot more sophisticated in their um, software acquisition uh, process, and they put a lot more thought into that strategy. And, you know, we have some companies now that tell us, you know, it's like, be glad you guys are cloud-based because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't work with you anymore. You know, the only non-cloud solutions we have are like old legacy ones that we can't get rid of. Um, you know, which, which I think really shows that some of those companies are on the forward foot with, uh, you know, with their thinking there. Um, you know, other companies, uh, you know, still, I think, put a lot of roadblocks in there. Um, you know, yeah, there's always been the legal and procurement side where you have to negotiate TNCs. But, you know, a lot of them, you know, really, uh, especially on the IT security side, um, you know, they, you know, hire consultants to come up with a checklist and that, you know, come up with some buzzwords like SOC 2 compliance. And, uh, and, you know, and then they send you questionnaires to fill out, um, you know, and 
it's one of those things. It's like, well, okay, you know, we can tell you that we have some of the largest suppliers of the data that you're concerned about using as customers on our platform. Uh, so they're comfortable putting their whole database in our platform. I think you should be comfortable putting the data you license from them in the platform. Um, you know, so there's a bit of a bit of that where I think IT security feels like they just have boxes to check. Um, now, granted, security is a very high priority, um, and we take it very seriously. But a lot of times, I, f I feel like companies, some companies, uh, just put up, you know. Uh, check boxes in front of you to go through in, in order to, uh, to get in the door. Um, so that's at the company level. At the individual level, um, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, different motivating factors that are involved. Uh, you know, I think there was uh, that Charlton Heston quote from one of his movies, you know, out of my cold, dead hands. And I think that's how, how some people view their favorite software. It's like, you are not going to take this away from me. You're never going to displace it. Don't, don't even try. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I understand that there are pieces of software that, that I love, um, that, you know, I have that feeling about, um, but with that said, we, we have noticed that, um, you know, more individuals, uh, as especially as there's been a lot of turnover, have been more open to new solutions. Um, I think, uh, you know, I hate to, I hate to stereotype, but you get, um, I think you you get people that are in, uh, you know, let's say, kind of the, they're they're not in thought leadership positions, but they're you know, very senior guys, and they have one specific task that they're asked to execute on. Um, I, I think with with them, you know, they look at it and they say, you know, I know I can execute, you know, using this piece of software. My time is stretched thin, and I'm not incentivized to switch to something new. Um, and it's it's been very, very hard to convert customers like that, you know, to get them to be willing to change. Um, with, especially with, uh, with people that are thought leaders and, and that are willing to experiment and, and have the flexibility in their job to, um, to try new solutions and are, you know, asked to innovate. Um, they've been a lot more open, uh, to, you know, trying out new technology and a lot of the younger, um, generation, you know, they, so people, that, you know, let's say have less than 10 years experience in the industry or really even less than five years, um, you know, they look at Petra or something like that that's, you know, literally not been updated since they were in middle school. And, uh, you know, and the software itself is actually older than they are. Um, and they, they look at that like, wow, what is this relic? Um, you know, we want something newer and fresher and... Um, you know, so for us, a lot of it is trying to, you know, get our software in front of them, uh, so they can see what it can do, um, before they get locked into a solution for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years of their career. So, you know, but, but it's, it's really an individual game. Like you're going to run into people that are just willing to, willing to try something new and, and people that are, 
you know, a bit more uh, Luddite in their response to new technology. Thinking about those challenges, is that something that your team tries to do? Do you guys try and think about keeping dynamics fresh, like the UI, the UX, like keeping that, like you said, modern, up-to-date, recognizable, and on par with kind of what you see across other um, cloud SaaS companies' products? Yeah, we, we try to make sure that a lot of the feel is is similar, you know, so when, you know, we try to, you know, follow design best practices. Um, now, with that said, like, you know, do we have the same, you know, design style? Like, I, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but like a lot of websites, you know, especially the ones that are form heavy, look almost identical, right? All the forms have the same shape and the same highlighting and you know, the same size. And, you know, we're not as focused on that part. What, you know, what, what we're really focused on is making sure that the workflows that we can execute on are the workflows that are applicable for today's, uh, you know, oil and gas professionals. Um, so, you know, if, if you think about what someone might have been really focused on, you know, uh, 20 years ago in the Anadarko Basin, it was drilling conventional prospects. Um, you know, so they were looking for a different set of tools. It was identify a sandstone that has porosity, um, you know, look at its thickness, uh, you know, things like that. Now it's identify an organic shell, understand, um, you know, its maturity, understand its mechanical properties, how amenable it is to fracking, uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, so it's really about making sure that the, not only does the software look and feel a bit more modern, um, you know, it is all delivered via the web, you know, so it, it naturally feels a bit fresher that way, but also making sure that the workflows inside uh, feel fresh as well. Great. Thanks for explaining that and thinking through that uh, with me. It's great to hear and just think about. I want to pivot now and kind of um, to, to more uh, personal reflection. And I wanted to ask you, Cameron, like, what does success look like for you? And do you distinguish between personal versus professional success? Or do you see that intertwined? What does success look like for you? Yeah, um, that's a that's a really good question. So Obviously, I, I believe that, you know, personal and professional success are intertwined, especially when you're an entrepreneur with a small company. Um, so, you know, and I, I've been thinking about this, uh, you know, more and more, um, especially now that I have have kids, um, you know, on the personal side, you know, what is success? It's making sure that I put my children, uh, you know, in a place where they can succeed, you know, make sure that they have the opportunities to be successful, you know, make sure that they, you know, get a good education, make sure they have a good understanding of right and wrong, uh, you know, making sure that they're, you know, physically active and healthy. Um, those are all personal goals of mine. Um, also, you know, my own like personal health, uh, you know, just making sure that, you know, I stay fit and exercise and, you know, um, am, am happy. Uh, you know, like I, I put a lot of weight on, on personal happiness. It's like, it doesn't matter 
how much money you have if like you're just miserable and downtrodden all the time. Um, so just making sure that, you know, I can always like get up in the morning and, and, you know, maybe after a cup of cup of coffee or two say, yeah, I'm ready to, you know, tackle the day. Um, so I mean, on, you know, on the personal side, that's what it's all about. I, I guess my one other goal on the personal side is making sure that, you know, once I'm ready to like hang it up, like, I, I don't want to have to, uh, you know, worry that when I'm 80, I'm going to uh, be a greeter at Walmart or whatever. Um, you know, so financial success is, of course, you know, a goal. But, you know, I've been successful enough in oil and gas where uh, I think I've, I've kind of personally checked that box. Um, with respect to company success, um, you know, obviously the company's success, uh, my personal financial success is very tied to that. Um you know, as uh, one of the co-founders of the company, um, you know, so, uh, you know, that that's where there's overlap. Also on the happiness front, uh, a lot of overlap there because, you know, when the company's doing well, you know, it just it just takes a weight off your your chest. Um, you know, you make a sale like you feel good, you know, customer comes to you and tells you like, you know, I was, I was struggling with something, but I got in your software and it, you know, helped me out. Like that just makes you feel great. Um, but in terms of, you know, what I would like the company to do, I really want over the next, let's say 12 to 18 months, uh, for us to continue to push hard into the geoscience market. Um, you know, start to convert some companies away from Petra, away from geographics and, and onto our platform. Um, you know, and success there is, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how I personally measure it is, you know, are we seeing, uh, you know, customer retention? So are we keeping all our current customers, um, current customer growth? Are they adding licenses? Um, you know, so not only are they renewing, but are they growing the number of licenses? Um, and so far we've done pretty, pretty good on that front. I've got to say, um, you know, are we adding new customers, uh, you know, and, um, you know, are we, uh, are we seeing good usage amongst customers? So, you know, what, what is the daily active user count? Um, you know, when, when we look at how customers are using the platform, are they using it the way we intended, or are they doing workarounds in it? And uh, so, you know, we try to, um, you know, we kind of try to gauge, like, are we, are we making the right product there? But, you know, really for us, it's about, it's about growing the customer base and starting to, you know, for a lot of our customers now, we run in parallel to existing solutions. We run in parallel to a petrophysics package. We run in parallel to a... Um, a geo, another mapping package. And I, I think true success will be displacing some of those legacy packages and, you know, getting people to view us as the primary platform as opposed to uh, a platform that they are, that they've just offloaded a large portion of their workflow to. Gotcha. No, I love, I love hearing that. So you're thinking that, you're thinking that right now, like you said, you're a program that runs in parallel, but in the future, and do you have, is this the next, uh, 
three years? Is this the next five years? Is this something that's limited by technically what you've built? Or is this limited by customers converting or new customers converting? What's the time frame for, for Dynomics being that one-stop shop? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, for some customers, we are a one-stop shop right now, um, especially some of the more uh, digitally focused customers. Um, you know, so I, I think uh, for, for definitely for some people, we are a one-stop shop now. Um, you know, for uh, a majority of customers, I think it's, it's really like, uh, you know, it's kind of a pendulum that's swinging. Um, you know, it's kind of like adding extra weight to a lever and just seeing when you get to a certain point. Um, and, and the reason I say that is there's just a, a massive long tail of features that can be developed. Um, you know, you look at a geoscience software and you, you start to name out all the features that are available. You know, you look through a help manual or a brochure and it's like, oh, we got this feature and this method. And, and it's just, you know, things that are, you know, it's a list a mile long. And then you talk to customers and it's like, all right, what's the one that you use every day? All right, we'll do that one first. Okay, what's the one that you use once a week? Okay, those are the features that we do next. And you get down to the ones that are, what are the ones you use like once or twice a year? Do you really need those? Okay, we'll, you know, defer um, those for the time being. And, and it's really trying to get to that point where you cover all the ones that they use on, let's say, a, a daily to weekly basis. And I think at that point, that's when, you know, you're going to see the tide really start to change. Um, and uh, so, you know, our goal is to, I mean, we're constantly chipping away at this. We've been releasing, you know, between 50 and 60 updates a year for the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that by, let's say by year end, um, 2023, that we will have a large enough bank of features where we can cover, you know, a significant portion of the workflows that legacy softwares can cover, plus have the added benefits um, of being a newer modern software and with having some more uh, specialized workflows. So, um, for example, you know, if, if we think about replacing Petro Geographics, yeah, we've got to get the, you know, we got to get up to speed with them on, you know, with respect to mapping or cross sections or uh, things like that. You know, we'll we'll get there. It's you know, it's just a matter of work. It's not it's not hard. It's just hours that you got to put in. Um, when when will you know that Dynomics has been successful? Will it be you have those features? Will it be uh, an acquisition? Will it be, you know, this EMP, this major EMP company is now a customer? What's, is there a mountaintop moment that you'll know? Well, I mean, you know, there, there could be a lot of uh, different um mountaintop moments and probably some false summits in there um to go with that analogy uh obviously i think you know getting a you know one of the majors on the platform um you know and having them use it as their primary subsurface package or at least a you know a significant portion of their subsurface workflow is contained within it that would be a a major moment um pun not intended there. 
uh you know obviously it you know we would also kind of feel like uh you know we were getting there if one of our large competitors um you know came in and said hey you guys are great we'd love to uh we'd love to acquire you um you know that that would probably you know be a signal that you know not a that we've gotten their attention and that they feel threatened by it, um, you know, and, th and that they didn't think they could, you know, do it on their own, um, you know, very efficiently. Uh, so I think both those would be kind of accomplishments, but I think, you know, I mean, acquisition, uh, you know, it, that, yes, that's one of the things that, you know, startups always think about is, you know, what's the potential exit. I don't really think about that that much. I think, you know, if we, get to a certain, you know, broad base of customers and, you know, we have, you know, a 90%, you know, retention rate um, on annual subscriptions across that customer base, um, that, that will be, you know, the summit and then the other things will come with it. Um, you know, offers for acquisitions, you know, bigger customers incorporating as their main platform, you know, it, It'll it'll just come in the natural course of things if we continue to execute and build the features that our current customers, you know, are telling us are important. Yeah, that's great. So, I, Cameron, I think I could just keep going. Like I just keep like you just. I just thought of another question, but I'm I'm going to hold back. Maybe we can do this again because uh, we got to transition over, you know, to kind of our wrap up questions for the show, um, and. So I want to ask you, um, if you had to name a favorite drink, what would that drink be? Uh, well, I've, uh, I've always been partial to the white Russian. Um, I, I think, I think part of that is, uh, because the big Lebowski was one of my favorite, <laughs> uh, <laughs> movies for, for years. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Bridges is the dude was just, uh, great, but you know, the, the white Russian is a, a drink that, uh, I, I really like, you know, Kahlua, uh, obviously just, you know, tastes great. Um, and, and, you know, I also just like the story behind that drink, which was basically they, you know, had made Kahlua and they're like, ah, oh, you know, we need a, you know, a signature drink to mix it in. So they invented the white Russian as, uh, as part of that, but it, you know, it's a good drink and it's also milk based. So it must be good for your teeth and bones. I'm sure. <laughs> that's, it's healthy. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's great. Um, I'm glad you mentioned big Lebowski cause I'm going to ask, I mean, is this, is this a choice uh, of the dudes? And so obviously it was, so, um, fun. What, what is your favorite? Are you a big reader? Do you like to read? Uh, I, I, I do a, yeah, I, I do less reading than I should these days. Um, but you know, I do enjoy uh do enjoy reading when I have the chance. So if you had to uh, choose a favorite book, do you have what would you choose? Yeah, I would um I'd probably say Dune. Um you know, it's uh it's probably you know, if if someone asked me for a sci-fi novel to read, um so sci-fi is, you know, probably my favorite genre. Uh, to read and you know dune just paints the picture of a, a sprawling universe um you know a, a rich story um you know and it's I, I just think it's very well written um so 
that's probably highest on my list. You know, other ones that are up there would be, you know, the, uh, you know, um, some of the books by uh, Isaac Asimov, um, and uh, you know, also the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Obviously, that you know, as far as far as a lighthearted read, I think um, I, I think that's a, a very fun book. Nice, yeah, and I mean Dune. I mean, with all the illusions and imagery and and social commentary, right on Arrakis and spice and oil and gas, right? I mean, that's right up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but now that you mention it, yeah, that is like you know, it's an extractive uh, industry with uh, you know less than a stellar reputation, and uh, you know, very much in a setting that I think the author admits he basically pulled out of the uh, Middle East as well. So, yeah, no, it's perfect for this uh, this uh, conversation uh, on sci-fi. Have um, I read a few years ago, uh, the space trilogy by CS Lewis. Um, have you, if you're familiar with that at all, uh, no, I've, I've not pretty great not trilogy. The, the last book takes a total, the third book in the trilogy takes a total t- tone shift from the other two, but he was definitely, um, emulating, um, HG Wells, Isaac Asimov, um, which is just crazy to see like how he could write, um, in different genres, like sci-fi, space fantasy, you know, children's fairy tale books. I mean, uh, yeah, great writing on that. You might enjoy that. Um, last question in wrapping up today's episode, what is the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, um, that is, I mean, I, I've got a lot of good advice. I've, I've had a lot of good mentors, um, but I, I'm going to go with uh, kind of an obscure piece of advice that I got kind of early to mid-career. Um, and uh, I'm not even sure it was a piece of advice, but it, it was um, it was something that a, a geologist that I respected told me. And he said, you know, whoever interprets the most seismic and picks the most tops wins. And... Um, and, you know, I, I thought about that and it's like, you know, he kind of just threw it out there. It was, uh, it was an Aussie gentleman that said that. And, uh, you know, he kind of threw that out there. And, and I started to think about it and I I'd almost forgot it for a couple of years. And then, um, you know, I had a, a younger team of my own that I was managing and it, it suddenly hit me what what he meant, which was, he didn't literally mean whoever, you know, interprets the most seismic wins or whoever, you know, clicks the most tops wins. But he, he meant it through the lens of, you know, when you when you really, you know, build up a broad body of experience through just looking at lots and lots and lots of data and you go through and you take the time to iterate and approve and improve and you don't just call it done. Like you, you get through you know, interpreting your seismic the first time. And then you go back and you interpret it again and again and again and try to make it incrementally better. Um, try different uh, different techniques, different methods to see if it leads you to a different conclusion. Um, you know, and, and I think that was a great piece of advice because, you know, personality-wise, I've always been uh, someone who 
likes to do the upfront work and get through the first 80% of something and, uh, and say, oh, well, you know, here we go. This is the answer, um, you know, and, uh, and I think that advice helped me, you know, go from that 80% answer to the more complete uh, answer. So I, I think it definitely, you know, something that, that stuck with me. And I, I think, you know, just broadly applicable um, in that, you know, I think a lot of lot of people today, especially younger people, um, and I, I was this way my early in my career is like we discount experience. It's like, ah, I'm I'm really smart. I know, you know, which buttons to click. I know what equation we're going to apply. Um, you know, what do I need? Some guy that's got 20 years of experience who's making, you know twice as much as I am for, um, you know, and, uh, and, and now I look back at it and I realize no experience does matter a lot. And, and those people, they may not have been able to click the button as fast, but they click the buttons a lot of time in their career, we'll say. And, uh, so I, I think that's the piece of advice that I got. Um, you know, although transmitted very casually and almost off the cuff that really stuck with me through the years. I love that. That's a great story. You're talking about like getting your reps in, like putting in the hours, like the 10,000 hours. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's very much similar to the, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours or similar to the, you know, the thought process that you hear, you know, professional athletes put in. It's like, you know, I'm shooting these free throws every day or, you know, professional fighters that, you know, say, oh, my hardest, you know, fights are in sparring. You know, once I get into the ring, I'm ready. Um, you know, it's, it, I feel like it's, it's exactly like you said, it's putting in those reps and, uh, you know, being patient and knowing that you'll get there. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that advice. Well, Cameron Snow, this has been a great conversation. Um, where do we send people, uh, to find out more about yourself and about dynamics? Yeah, so to learn more about Denomics, um, visit our website. It's uh, www.denomics.com, and that's D-A-N-O-M-I-C-S. And, you know, to get in touch with me or uh, to learn more about my background, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, Just uh, look for Cameron Snow, and uh, I'm the one that does all the uh, oil and gas stuff. So um, it's, a, it's a great way to find me. Just feel free to connect with me and, you know, send me a message. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Cameron. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I really appreciated the opportunity to be on here. And if you ever want to talk again, just... Will do. Thanks. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Energy Builders.